0: We see in the book of Acts, one of the things that Luke is trying to show us is the diversity of the people with whom the gospel had an in, and the different types of people from all different walks of life, all different ethnic groups, all different classes of people and even economic strata that were affected by the gospel. And as you read through the book of Acts, you notice that some very powerful people have come to faith in Christ. Cornelius was a wealthy and influential man as a Roman soldier. And not only him, but also Menaean. Do you remember Acts chapter 13? Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, a foster brother to royalty, had somehow become a believer and come to faith and was now ministering in the church at Antioch. And then Lydia, last week, a wealthy businesswoman, very influential, very affluent, um, in business for herself, High economic strata. And she came to faith in Christ. And not only does God save the rich and the poor together, but also people from different ethnic backgrounds. Cornelius was a Gentile. You have Jews and you have Gentiles and you even have those Samaritans, which are kind of in between, half of of each, so to speak. All, All of them getting saved. And then Luke shows us that you have people who from all different types of backgrounds and walks of life. Business people and poor people and eunuchs from Ethiopia, and soldiers, and royalty, and all of these different people who are coming to faith. All of these different backgrounds, all of these different economic uh, of influences that each person has, the diversity that was in the early church. And now we see it again, because last week, the woman that we looked at, Lydia, And this week, the lady that we're going to be looking at, this demon-possessed slave girl, they could not be from two more opposite ends of the spectrum. Lydia was a businesswoman. She was affluent. She was she was a seller of purple fabrics. She had a very prosperous business. She sold her fabrics to very wealthy people, to royalty, and to people who had money to burn, who just wanted to display their wealth, and so they bought purple fabrics. She had a large house that could house all of those missionaries that became sort of the staging place for Paul's ministry in Philippi for as long as he was there, as well as with Silas and Timothy and Luke. They were with him. And then you have this slave girl who's not in business for herself like Lydia. She is the business. She is the source of revenue for people who own her. So Lydia is a businesswoman. The slave girl is somebody else's business. Now, both of them are profitable. Lydia gets her own profit. The slave girl is profit to somebody else. Not only that, but one of them is free. One of them is a slave girl. Different social strata there. Um, Lydia's heart had been bent by the Lord to seek Him. She had been influenced such that she was out by the riverside praying with the Jews. She had a religious bent where the, the Lord had taken the Word of God and had begun to bend her heart toward Him so that she was out at the riverside rather than being Philippi on the Sabbath, plying her trade and selling her wares, she was at the Riverside meeting for a quasi-synagogue service with other Jewish women who also feared God. Lydia is a God-fearing Gentile. And there she is reading the Word and praying with the other ladies. The slave girl, her heart has not been bent by the Lord toward to seek Him. Her heart has been bent by the Prince of Darkness to do His will. Look at the difference between these two ladies. And not only that, friends, but you also have the fact that uh, Lydia's heart was in was was um, or sorry the slave girl's heart the slave girl's heart was possessed by the prince of darkness. Lydia's heart was a worshiper of the God of Israel. Two complete opposites, and I think Luke takes these two people out of all that Paul came across in Philippi. Luke takes these two people and he presents them side by side so you can see how the gospel came to everybody. It was everybody. Truly, any and all who call upon the Lord in any place shall be saved. That's what Luke is showing to us. Anybody who will call upon the Lord in any place, no matter what their economic strata, no matter what their social classification, no matter what their background, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their power, can come to the Lord or are drawn to Him. Any and all in every place who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We are in Acts chapter 16, if you haven't guessed that by now, so you'll need to have your Bibles open there. And in the last few weeks, I've given you kind of the answers to a lot of Bible trivia questions. So you can, if you're ever playing Bible trivia, as long as it's not with somebody else from our church here, you're going to have a lot of answers, and you're going to be kind of able to um, impress them a little bit. If somebody asks you, where was the first church in Europe started? You'll know that, right? Where was it? Philippi. Who was the first European convert that we know of? Lydia. Who was the first Christian missionary to the continent of Europe? Who was it? Paul. Now those may come up in a Bible trivia game. They may not come up in a Bible trivia game. But all of that serves to give us a little bit of a background and introduction to where we're at today. The, uh, Luke is giving to us three encounters that Paul had. The first with Lydia by the riverside. The second we look at today It is with this demon-possessed slave girl. Look at Acts chapter 16 beginning... At verse 16, Luke says it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master's much profit by her fortune telling. Uh, They were on their way out to the riverside after they had been in Philippi for a a little length of time. Paul is doing what Paul did in every city. He would attend where the God-fearers met, whether it was in a synagogue or at the riverside. He would attend there until one of two things happened. He had converted everybody and discipled everybody and planted a church and moved on or until he was kicked out. So that's what he's doing. He's going back out to the place of prayer where all of the God-fearers are at and he is there evangelizing and discipling the people who have gathered there for prayer. On one particular Sabbath, we might say it just so happened, but listen, when it comes to salvation and deliverance, nothing just so happens. If you don't have figured that out by now, I hope you have. Nothing just so happens. We might say, as it were, on one of these particular Sabbath days, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are making their way outside the city of Philippi to the place of prayer where they met Lydia. And they're gathering there t- together and Paul's going to do what Paul always did, evangelize and disciple. And they're they're met by a demon-possessed slave girl. Or Luke says literally a woman, a slave girl who was had a spirit of divination, literally a python spirit, the Greek says. She had a python spirit. Now, that comes from sort of a Greek mythology, a Greek legend, that there was a snake, a python, that guarded this Delphic oracle. And the snake supposedly had the ability to foretell the future and, and divine different things and fortune tell and soothsay. And according to Greek mythology, Apollo slayed that serpent, the python, that was at the base of this mountain guarding the oracle. And then Apollo had the ability to foretell the future and soothsay and divine. And so the word python came to mean anybody who had this who was possessed of the python, the snake spirit, that had the ability to foretell the future and to forecast what was going to happen. This woman had a python spirit. And she was making much money for her masters. Because women like that, slave girls like that, who had this clairvoyant ability to foretell the future, so to speak, they were in much demand. Because no Roman general would go out to battle without consulting an oracle first. Is it going to turn out for me good or ill? They wanted to know that. No emperor would make a decree without first consulting a diviner or a soothsayer because they had this superstition that they wanted to know what the future held if they pursued a certain course of action. Do you remember Lemus, the Jewish false prophet on the island of Cyprus? He was in the court of Sergius Paulus. That was his job, to soothsay and divine. And, and Sergius Paulus would consult him. What does the future hold? This is this type of woman. She's possessed by a python spirit and has the ability to divine, to tell the future, to predict things. She's a a medium, a spiritist. And there are certain men who are making profit off of the fact that her soul is in bondage to the prince of darkness. These are wicked people. Can you imagine that? She is a veritable goldmine for them. They are raking in money, hand over fist, from this girl who is a slave for them and has the ability to foretell the future. It's given to her by a python spirit. Luke says that on the way out to the church service, Paul was met by this woman, by this girl, who's possessed of a python spirit, a spirit of divination. She was bringing her master's much profit by her fortune teller. And following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Luke says she did this for many days. Now there's a couple of odd things about this, isn't there? First of all, you notice an evil spirit, a demon, who is endorsing the Apostle Paul's ministry. Does that bother you a little bit? Was what she said true? These men are bondservants to the Most High God. Is that a true statement? Almost oh, certainly is. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. Is that a true statement? It most certainly is. Then folks, what in the world is going on here? Why do we have a demon endorsing the ministry of the Apostle Paul? What, what's the end game here? Why is the Spirit doing this? Speaking the truth about a messenger of God and the message that he proclaims. And she did this for many days. What's the end game? Well, I think one of two things is going on here. Ironically, I think they're both opposites, but I think that either one of these could be taking place. First of all, it is possible that the Spirit, by doing this, this demon spirit, by doing this, is trying to cash in on Paul's credibility. Trying to infiltrate, as it were, the early church. In other words, she could be following after the Apostle Paul saying, These men are servants of the Most High God. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she would be, in, as it were, really endorsing that and trying to be seen as part of their group. And then if they were, she was accepted by the crowd and by the church as part of that group, part of the Apostle Paul's new church in Philippi, then once Paul left town, she would be in a tremendous position to do spiritual harm to that ministry and to that church. It may be that she's trying to infiltrate that church And she's cashing in on Paul's credibility, so to speak, waiting for him to leave town and then wreak havoc. Or it might be something quite the opposite. It might be that she is trying to discredit the Apostle Paul's credibility. Everybody in town would know what this woman did, that she was possessed of the python spirit, that she foretold the future, and that would cast aspersions on Paul's ministry, and people would begin to ask themselves, who is this Paul that demons speak well of him? What's wrong with this guy's ministry and his message when demons endorse it? See, so it may be that she's trying to discredit the Apostle Paul's ministry. Either one of those could be happening. All that Luke tells us is that she was speaking the truth. Friends, this this same thing happened to Jesus, in a sense. In Mark chapter 1, Mark says that Jesus healed many who were coming to Him with various diseases, and He cast out many demons, and He was not permitting them to speak because they knew who He was. Luke in his Gospel writes this, Demons were coming out of many shouting, You are the Son of God, but rebuking them, Jesus did not allow them to speak because they knew Him to be the Christ. Jesus did not want publicity from demonic sources. Because if they affirmed who He was and what He was doing, it would actually be speaking the truth in an effort to undermine the truth. And I think that's what the demon girl is doing. Friends, what I want you to notice here is how Satan will use the truth to undermine the truth. He's an angel of light, isn't he? So he does his best work when he can take the truth, mingle it with a little bit of error, and hand it over to you. When he can take the truth, and take falsehood, and bring them together, and give it to you. This demon is saying a true thing, speaking a true statement, uttering divine truth. These men are bondservants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. True statement. Spoken by a demon... To undermine the truth. That's how subtle Satan is. And he does the same thing today. Now friends, do you notice how every time the gospel advanced, how Satan attacked it? When the gospel went from Jerusalem to Samaria, Satan had his man on the scene. Who was it? Simon the sorcerer. Trying to infiltrate that early church in Samaria. When Paul took the gospel from Antioch to the island of Cyprus, Satan had his man on the scene. Who was it? Elymas, the Jewish magician, the false prophet in Acts chapter 13. And when Paul takes the Gospel from, from uh, Asia over to Macedonia, the continent of Europe, Satan has his woman on the scene. Who is it? It's the slave girl. Every time the Gospel advanced, Satan had his counter advance. He had his person on the scene. And here Paul confronts her. So the first odd thing that's going on here is how this demon gives an endorsement of the Apostle Paul's ministry. But the second odd thing that's going on is that Luke says this happened for many days. This didn't just happen for a day or an hour. Many days. How many? I don't know, a few days, maybe a couple weeks this went on. If her attempt is to infiltrate the church and she's pretending to be a believer and pretending to endorse Paul's ministry, then it might explain why it is that it took Paul so long to kind of catch on or to deal with it. Perhaps it took him a couple weeks to finally realize where this endorsement was coming from and what her motive was. Whatever was going on, it took him many days before he finally dealt with it. And Luke says, Paul got annoyed. He got troubled. He got vexed in his spirit that this was going on. And finally, out of being grieved in his spirit that this was happening, Paul turned around and said, Get out. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, get out. And she got out. I want you to notice how different this is from modern day, quote unquote, deliverance ministries. Notice that? We have people today who say, you got to go into a town. When you go into a town, the first thing you have to do is name all the demons and then you have to identify them and pray against them and pray them down. And then you've got to bind Satan and cast him out, and you got to put up a tent and have exorcisms and deal with Satan head on. If you're going to have any headway at all, you've got to confront the powers of darkness, and you've got to exorcise them out of every demon-possessed person, and some of you might be demon-possessed. So after the service today, you come forward and I'll exorcise. That's the mentality, or so we're told. Let me just ask you a question. You read about the Apostle Paul. Do you get the impression that that's how he handled things? You've been here since Acts 13, 14, 15, 16. Do you get the impression that that's what Paul did? This was going on for many days. Finally, Paul is just exasperated. Get out. And she leaves. The Spirit leaves her. No kind of deliverance ministry there, folks. What is an exorcism in the New Testament? What is an exorcism? Let me show you what an exorcism is and how the New Testament viewed Exorcisms, And we don't even have to leave the book of Acts. Just turn back to Acts chapter 8. I want you to notice a couple of verses there in Acts chapter 8. This is speaking of Philip. Acts chapter 8, verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. You see, Philip had left Jerusalem and gone down to Samaria to preach the gospel because of the persecution in Jerusalem. And the crowds were with one accord listening to what he said because they heard and saw the signs that he was performing. He was doing miracles in their midst. What kind of miracles? Verse 7, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. What kind of miracles was Philip doing? People were listening to him because he was performing signs and he was performing miracles What kind of signs and what kind of miracles? Luke says two things. He was casting out demons and he was healing the sick. Those are the type of miracles that Philip was doing. Turn over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. It says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, notice again the emphasis on the apostles and those closely related to the apostles performing miracles. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary miracles. What kind of extraordinary miracles was Paul performing? Verse 12, So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. How does Luke view exorcisms? Something that everybody does? The whole church is involved in exorcisms. You're walking down the street and you see somebody you think is possessed by a demon, you just walk up and lay hands on them and say, get out, I command you in the name of Jesus, leave him, leave her. Is that how Luke thinks of miracles? Philip and Paul were performing extraordinary miracles by the power of God. What kind of miracles? Healing the sick and exercising the possessed. They're miracles. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12, Paul says, The signs of an apostle were done in your midst. What kind of signs? What are the signs of an apostle? Paul says they were performed with all perseverance in signs and wonders and miracles. Paul says you want evidence of my apostolic credentials? I'll give you the proof that I'm an apostle. I perform miracles in your midst. You see, my friends, the ability to perform miracles was given to Jesus Christ and the apostles as an authentication of their message and their ministry. And through the book of Acts, when we see people performing signs, they are signs like healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons. So should we be performing signs today? Should we be performing miracles and exorcisms? I don't think so. Friends, you will read your New Testament in vain to find instructions on performing an exorcism. Do it this afternoon. Sit down and read from Romans all the way through to Revelation. And in all of the epistles written to churches and to pastors, you will look in vain for any kind of instruction, any kind of detail, and any kind of command to any follower of Christ, any church, or any pastor to perform an exorcism. Why? For the same reason that we're not given instructions on how to raise the dead or heal the sick or lengthen legs. It's not our ministry. What does a slave of Satan need other than the gospel? Nothing. You say, well, they need... The gospel plus an exorcism. Paul would say anathema. It is when we believe that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That happens through the proclamation of the word and the coming of the gospel with conviction and with the power of the Holy Spirit to the human heart. And upon belief, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And it happens just like that. Complete deliverance from anything. No need an exorcism. You need the gospel. What Paul did in Acts chapter 16, friends, was a miracle. And it was intended to authenticate his message and him as a messenger and a spokesman for God. Extraordinary miracles, like exorcisms. That's a miracle. It's not commonplace. It wasn't intended to be commonplace. Well, no good deed goes unpunished. Paul, having set this little girl free from her possession and from her bondage to darkness, and and listen, I would assume, and, and the text doesn't say this, but my assumption is that at the same moment, she also believed, received the gospel, got saved, and was baptized, just like the Philippian jailer and just like Lydia. Luke doesn't mention all of that, but he does put her conversion or her deliverance right between Lydia and the Philippian jailer, as if to intone that she is one of these people who was met by Paul and set free. I can't imagine the Apostle Paul... Performing this kind of a miracle and exercising a demon and then just leaving her be without explaining the Gospel and bringing her to faith in Christ. So I think the assumption of the text is that she got saved. So she was delivered from darkness. She was delivered from this demon. And what happens? The whole town loved Paul and Silas. They thought what they did was great. Nope. Look at verse... Oh, I'm still in Acts chapter 19. Look at verse 7 18. Paul says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very instant. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, or literally exercised, not only had the demon been exercised, but their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. The marketplace in those days was where all the business was conducted. The magistrates and Philippi as a Roman colony had two people who ruled over it directly under the authority of Rome. And the magistrates sat in the marketplace, and the marketplace was where you went if you needed a job. That's where you went to conduct business. That's where you went to trade slaves. That's where you went to have justice done. And if you had a grief with somebody, you would drag them into the marketplace and stand before the magistrates, and you would present your beef with them. So they do this with Paul and Barnabas. They drag them. They see that all of a sudden their business hope has dried up. Their business investment has gone down the tubes, and they cannot make any money off of this woman anymore. So they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them before the authorities, and in verse uh, 20, they brought them to the chief magistrates and said, "These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are not pro- are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans." What? What does that accusation have to do with anything that's happened so far? These men are throwing our city into confusion, and they're Jews. It's a racial slur. They're Jews. And they're proclaiming things that it's not lawful for us to observe. Now that had to have caught the Apostle Paul a little flat-footed. He's exercised a demon and set this little girl free from her possession, from her slavery. Really, they can't profit off of her soul anymore. And so the Master sees them and they drag him into the magistrates. And if I'm the Apostle Paul, as I'm being drugged down into the marketplace, I'm thinking to myself, what kind of an accusation are they going to level against me? What are they going to say, she, they said, we set this woman free? We delivered her from darkness. This is going to be an easy one to answer. They have nothing to stand on. And then they come out with this. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming something that's not lawful for us to observe being Romans. Where did that accusation come from? Right out of the blue. It has nothing to do with anything that's gone on. And if I'm Paul, I would be chuckling. (laughs) That's the best you got? When it comes time to bring the witnesses in here to testify as to what's happening, nobody's going to be able to convict us of having thrown the city into confusion. It's it's out here in front of everybody, our ministry and everything that we've done. We haven't done anything that they've accused us of doing. This is open and shut case. They've got nothing. So what do they do? Well, I want you to look at the accusation that is brought against them. It's designed to, it's sort of crafted and leveled in such a way that it, it, it's, it smells of this it's good for everybody type thing. They're throwing the city into confusion. I mean, we're only looking out for everybody else. The one thing that's absent is their real beef. You notice that? They don't come there and they don't say, hey, these guys set our slave girl free from demon possession. They don't say that. But the one thing that they do say is kind of crafted to sort of appeal to the political sensibilities of everybody. They're creating confusion in the city. They hadn't done that. They had created confusion in their business, but certainly not in the city. These men are creating confusion in the city, being Jews. Now, you remember last week I told you about what happened a year, a year and a half prior to... Paul coming into Philippi. Claudius, the emperor in Rome, had expelled the Jews from Rome. And he cited that the Jews were causing civil unrest. So this accusation is geared to play upon the political events of recent years. These guys are Jews. It's a racial slur. They're Jews. And you remember how Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome because they were creating civil unrest? The same thing is happening here. They want Paul out of the city. So they can find another demon-possessed slave girl and profit off of her or hopefully get this other one that Paul had just set free, demon-possessed again, and get their business back into order. But they know they can't do it if Paul is there. So they want him kicked out of the city just like the Jews were expelled from Rome in 49 AD. Racially motivated. Second, they play upon sort of the nationalistic pride. They are teaching things that are contrary to our customs and our culture and our religious way of life being Romans it's us against them and that last part of the accusation is is sort of crafted in order to pit the crowd against Paul and Barnabas or sorry Paul and Silas but does it work well certainly it does look at verse 22 the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods each one of the magistrates had what was called a policeman underneath of him and And the job of that policeman was to inflict corporal or capital punishment at the command of the magistrate. So when the magistrate gave an order, the policemen, they actually carried around with them a bundle of rods and an axe. Both of them were symbols of their ability to inflict corporal punishment or capital punishment. And so the magistrates, when the crowd is whipped into this fury, the magistrates give the order, beat them. So they strip them off naked, and in the public square there, they take these rods, and Luke says they beat them Many times. They were in the marketplace before the authorities, and when they had brought them... oh sorry, verse 24. Or verse 23. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison. Struck them with many blows. Now folks, for me, three would be many. Can you agree with that? Three blows would be plenty. But Luke doesn't have in mind three. Luke is trying to get us to understand they were beaten pretty severely with rods. They beat Paul and they beat Silas. And we may ask the question, where's Luke and Timothy during all this? I mean, They were here just last week, right, with Lydia? They were here when they met the slave girl. Where's Luke and Timothy? Were they beaten? No, they weren't. Two reasons why. Paul and Silas are the leaders, and when you become a leader, you become a target. And so Luke and Timothy are obviously just considered sort of traveling companions and helpers. They're going to nail the leadership, which is Paul and Silas. But a second reason is Luke and Timothy were not Jews, were they? In the eyes of the Gentiles or the Romans, they were both Romans. So they're not really concerned with Luke and Timothy. They're going to have a hard time getting the crowd whipped up into a fury to beat a couple of Romans, Luke and Timothy. So they kind of leave them alone, and they go after Paul and Silas, who would have looked like Jews and sounded like Jews and had all kinds of Jewish features. They can get the crowd whipped up into an anti-Semitic fury over Paul and Silas. And so they beat them, and then they give the command to the jailer, secure them, imprison them, and put them in there and guard them securely. Why did the magistrates stipulate that Paul and Silas had to be guarded securely? You know why? Because when somebody performs a miracle or a sign amongst your midst, you want to make sure that if you're going to chain them, you're going to chain them well. Because you never know what kind of a Houdini trick they're going to be able to do to get out of the prison. So the jailer, having received the command, takes Paul and Silas, having beaten them, brings them into the inner prison. Now the outer prison was where the prisoners were allowed to visit their relatives and they could, you know, talk through the chain link fence and, and pass smokes and things like this. It was minimum security. Paul and Silas are put in the inner prison. Dark, damp, and lonely. And the jailer puts their feet in the stocks. Those are not chains, little clasp chained to the wall. Back in those days, stocks were a board with multiple holes in it. And they, they were designed to spread their legs apart and put their feet in these stocks and then the stocks were designed to wrench their legs apart far in order to cause the most discomfort, cramping in the lower body and the buttocks and the lower back, the most uncomfortable position they could be in. They couldn't escape. Now let me just remind you of something. The Apostle Paul is nearly 50 years old when all this happens. He's no spring chicken. Now I, I might be able to take such a beating and such an imprisonment with a, a good spirit and a, a smile on my face if everything were going well, but Paul is almost 50 years old. It'd be hard for a young man to take this guy's. I'm not trying to offend those of you who are near 50, but you know you get up there a little bit and you start. You don't heal as, as well. Your body starts to speak to you a lot more when you get up by 50. It does that to me at 30. I mean, I speak on the phone for a long time, holding my hand up like this, and the next day I'm, man, what happened to my arm? My arm's just killing me. My body speaks to me more. When you get to be 50, like the apostle Paul, this is a serious beating, and he's been beaten, and he's put in the stock. Paul mentioned this writing, or Paul mentioned this incident twice. Once in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 25, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. This is one of those times. I don't know when the other two times were, but three times he said I was beaten with rods. He's thinking of Philippi. In Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is going to leave Philippi. He's going to go to Thessalonica and plant a church there. He would leave Thessalonica, and after leaving Thessalonica, he would write to the Thessalonians, and he would say this in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 and 2. You know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had suffered and been mistreated at Philippi, we came to you in boldness and preached to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He says to the Thessalonians, you remember how we suffered at Philippi. And do you notice what's absent from all of this that's happened so far between 16 and 24? Something's missing. A trial. No witnesses. No evidence the accusers bring them before there before them they are punished and they are imprisoned there's no trial no holding over no seeing if there's enough evidence to convict them they're not even paul is not even given a chance to offer his defense he is accused he is beaten and he is imprisoned and all of that happens fast enough that there's no trial every every shred of decent justice is set aside for the purpose of punishing these two men and getting them out of the city That's going to come in significant in a couple weeks because that ends up coming back to bite the magistrates who oversaw this whole kangaroo court, if you will. Friends, this is the most unjust of suffering. And this is what Peter had in mind when he said, if you suffer and you endure it with patience, it finds favor with God. He's talking about situations like this. You do what is right, and in the process of doing what is right, in the most unjust of circumstances, you're punished for it. When that happens and you endure it with patience, it brings God's favor. That's difficult to understand, isn't it? But it is nonetheless true. We're going to leave Paul in prison for one week. He's only going to be there a couple hours in real time. But we're going to pick up the story here again next week. And in the course of this week, listen, I don't want you to feel sorry for Paul because he doesn't feel sorry for himself. I don't want you to worry about Paul because he's certainly not worried about anything that's going on. Paul understands that God in all things has a purpose. In all things, God has a purpose. And you're going to see what the purpose of this whole thing is next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You that You are the sovereign God and we can trust You in all of life's circumstances and situations. We pray, Father, that You would encourage us through what we read here about the suffering of Paul. And that we would be encouraged to preach the gospel and to share Christ amid much opposition, whatever life may bring, and trust you with the consequences and with the results. We praise you for who you are. We thank you that you give to us strength and encouragement through your word. And we ask for your blessing upon us today and upon our attempts and our desires to share Christ and to stand for truth and leave the consequences with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.